Uh, so we're going to have a shear, obviously, now about uh, Purim. Uh, so this is the Purim shear. And uh, at some point, we'll have at least one, maybe even two, hopefully, shiurim on, uh, on Pesach. You know, uh, at least one in terms of reviewing the halachos in general, and of course, the preparing of the house halachos. And then uh, if we have a chance, hopefully if there's time, maybe we'll do a second shear for Pesach on uh, something more uh, hashkafa or some messages for the Haggadah. Uh, no reason that you have to always be listening to other people give Divrei Torah. Why can't you guys give some of the Divrei Torah at the shear? So if I can help in that regard, it would be my pleasure. Uh, but let's first focus on the, the first holiday that we have coming up, Baruch Hashem, in a week plus, and that is uh, the holiday of Purim. So what I wanted to do uh, was to give an overview in general. I'm happy to take any questions. I want to hit, I guess, five or six different topics, uh, starting from this Shabbos with Parshan Sachor, all the way through uh, Purim, uh, in general an overview, and obviously with some specific uh, focus on uh, women's obligations. So we start, of course, uh, anticipating uh, the holiday of Purim with Pasha Zachar, which will be read this Shabbos. Uh, the Torah tells us in source number one on your sheet, if those who have it, that, uh, and this is in Devarim and Pasha's Kitetze, Zachar es asher asalacha amalek. Right, the, the story of Amalek attacking us is uh, recorded in Pasha's Bashalach after we left Mitzrayim. But the mitzvah to remember what Amalek did is told to us not until we get into uh, Sefer Devarim. And initially the Torah describes it as a mitzvah of Zohar, remember what Amalek did. Torah continues uh, describing that and reminding us about the significance of that. And then if you look at the last few words of source number one, uh, right at the end of it, then the Torah repeats the words, Lo tishkach. So there turns out to be a double formulation. You have a positive obligation, it seems like, to remember, and then a secondary uh, you know, phrase or clause at the end of Lo tishkach. And the Gemara actually deduces from this in source number two something incredibly significant, and this is really the origins of what you and I all are familiar with as quote-unquote zachor or reading zachor and all that stuff. It comes from this Gemara, source number two, based on those psukim, where the Gemara assumes, this is the assumption that the Gemara and the Mishnah already made, that you need to read, it's not enough just to think about, you need to read, verbalize your recollection of the events of the story of Amalek and the mitzvah of zachor. So the Gemara asks, Mimai, the high Zahira Kriyehi, source number two. How do we know that this is not just something that I have to remember? Usually if I would tell you, remember something, you would think of that as something intellectual in your mind. How do you know this has to be something that's articulated, verbalized, uh, in a way that uh, enunciated that people can hear? Maybe just thinking about it should be enough. So Gemara says, No, don't say that. That would be totally wrong. Why? Because on the one hand, the Pasuk said, Zachor. So just from the words remembering, you're right. I might have thought that that would be... Uh, Intellectual, just as much as I think about it. However, if that would be the case, Kishu Omer Lo Tishkach. So when the Pasuk then, if you, you know, two Pesukim later says, don't forget, Well, if I tell you not to forget, where is that, where is that taking place? In your mouth? No, that's also obviously something intellectual. So if, if Zohar was in your mind and Lo Tishkach is in your mind, it's redundant. So rather says the Gemara, what does it mean? Hama'ani Mekayim Zohar, Bipeh. It's really coming to tell us this kind of a, seems a little bit of a, to be a complex thing. You, you know, one could ask, and I don't have an answer for this, well, why wouldn't the Torah just tell us, remember? This is a question you can ask a million times, right? Why don't you just say what you wanted? Why does it have to be this complex thing where you need a Torah Shabal to figure it out? I don't know. That's Hashem's way. But the bottom line is what emerges from this double language of Zachor and Lotishkach is the fact that even though oftentimes we just think about things and that should be sufficient, here this is actually a mitzvah that has to be verbalized. But what is interesting is from the Gemara, there's no indication that this was in a Torah, in a minion, 
right? Maybe I just have to say the words. Maybe I have to read these psukim. Maybe I have to just uh, say the words. I remember Amalek. I hate Amalek, right? That's not at all clear. The only thing we know from the Gemara is that it's not enough to be intellectual. It has to be verbalized. And because of that ambiguity, it seems funny to you maybe now, given that you've grown up your whole life knowing that there's Parsha Zohar readings. But that's not at all obvious from the Gemara. And in fact, there are numerous, numerous different machlokos in the Rishonim to try to figure out the details of this mitzvah. Another issue, which is not at all obvious from the Gemara, who said you have to do that every year? Did I forget since last year? The Sefer HaChinuch actually says, maybe every two to three years. Minchas Kinuch says, once in your life, once you know it, who's going to forget? Who's going to forget? Right? So in theory, one could have imagined uh, all sorts of different uh, ideas. However, however, there is a big group of Rishonim who establish what our practice is, which is that in fact, even though it's not definitively clear in the Gemara, we assume it's once a year. And the once a year uh, is based on an idea which we have in uh, other contexts of halacha as well, which is the assumption that on some level, forgetfulness creeps in after a year. Uh, I would assume that the best way to understand, again, it's a general rule, so it's a, it's a generalization, so obviously everyone's different, but I think what it means is more of like, you know, front of the mind versus the back of the mind kind of thing. Right? Well, after a year already, you know, it's not that you couldn't recall it if you had to, but it's not so much in the front of your mind. But if you repeat it, once, this comes up, like, this is where the idea comes from that you should put up a matseva. Come on, look, somebody dies. So some people do it even after, some people do it after shiva, a lot of people do it after shloshim, but what's brought down is that it has to be at least within the first year. Why? Because until the first year, it's still very much fresh. But unfortunately, over time, even with beloved relatives, just the nature of uh, human beings, that it won't be as frontal in your mind. So that's where this idea of once uh, a year uh, comes from. Interestingly, the post can discuss, what about a year like this? This week's Parsha Zappa reading is not one year since last year's. It's 13 months. Right? So if you really were very robotic about it, very literal, 12 months people forget. So, so in fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's the Chassam Sofer. I didn't double check this morning, but if I remember correctly from previous years, I think it's the Chassam Sofer. There are others who say, well, yes, maybe in Adar Rishon you should do something. Say, not, not read from the Torah. No one says take out the Torah as far as I know. But, maybe, but the overwhelming minhag Yisrael is that uh, we assume that the halachic reality uh, impacts these things. And if, it, if, if, if in a leap year, the year was 13 months, so then uh, that's enough. And that is, of course, uh, our practice. Um, so that's in terms of the, uh, the timing. And we see from the Gemara it has to be articulated. It's not obvious from the Gemara that it has to be dafka uh, from a Sefer Torah. That's a debate in the Rishonim. But if you take a look at source number three, so we know our practice, and this is how it's codified in the Shulchan Aruch, source number three, that uh, we know there's different Shabbosos uh, that have special Haftoros uh, and Maftirs. I should say, you know, we did the Parsha Shkolim, so source number three says so the Shulchan Aruch, and after Shkolim, what's the next one in the order? We take out two Sefer Torah, Bechad Korah Parsha Sashavua, so this week it's going to be Vayikra, Ubesheni, and in the second Sefer Torah, what do we read? Zohar Asher Asalacha Amalek. So it's already, by the time of the Shulchan Aruch, our practice, which we've all grown up with, which is that we don't just think about it or even just say the words of Zohar, but we try to read it from a Sefer Torah that's enshrined here in the, codified in the Shulchan Aruch. I'm just pointing out to you that all of this is, interestingly enough, uh, not uh, necessarily uh, obvious. Um, what if a person missed the word? We know we try to be very, we'll announce, I always announce, every rabbi announces, you know, be, listen very carefully and have a mind to be yotze and not to talk. So what if you, uh, you missed a word? So it's interesting that uh, there's a big kula of Rosh Hashanah Zalman Orbach. 
He says, even if you missed a word, as long as you basically got the gist of the story, it's okay. But uh, many other posts can disagree, and this is an opportunity to quote uh, very recent events live uh, in this community in a shear co-sponsored by our shul just uh, this past week. Vasher Weiss gave a shear here in the neighborhood, uh, in Beis Tefillah, uh, and he quoted that Roshav Orbach, and he described very, I think, compellingly why he disagreed. Uh, and therefore, Bidyevid, Bidyevid, maybe, maybe someone would rely on that, but I think uh, it makes much more sense to assume that, in fact, one needs to hear uh, every word. Uh, and even if you missed a word, uh, that really would be a problem if you're trying to fulfill uh, the mitzvah. So this brings us now to the question of everyone else in the room but me, which is how does this all apply to women? Again, nothing in the Gemara one way or the other. So prima facie, if you didn't know any better, what would you assume? I would assume women are potter. Right? It's a mitzvah, it's a grama. Once a year, once a year is the same like matzahs once a year, or okay, matzah you're obligated in, but that's for other reasons. But uh, you know, lulav is once a year, and sukkah is once a year, and shofar is once a year. Those are all things that mikar hadin. We say women are pater from because it's time bound. So I would have imagined that women would be pater. The truth is, very interestingly, in all of the Gemara and all of the Rishonim, no one even says a word except for one source, the Sefer Chinuch. And the Sefer Chinuch says women are pater, they're not chayev. Now, not only is that significant in and of itself, you know, in the same shir this past week, Rav Asher Weiss pointed out, if you assume, and I think it's reasonable to assume, that the default would have been the woman or pater, so what can you deduce from all the other Rishonim who didn't say a word? Probably that they thought it was obvious that they're pater. I think it's a reasonable point. If you're going to tell them, if they're chayev, you should have told me. I thought that was reasonable. Nevertheless, despite everything I just said, there are a number of very prominent achronim who felt that women are obligated in hearing uh, Parsha Zachor. It's a very, very interesting discussion. Again, if, uh, there's enough material just to give an hour on Parsha Zachor, which we're obviously not going to do, so I'm going to just very much, uh, you know, will suffice it pointing out that there are some very prominent postkim who think women are obligated, but it is far from obvious, and the, certainly from Rishonim, it's not clear at all that women would have been obligated. So take a look at source number four. I want to read this together with you. This is actually from contemporary Posek, Rav Sternbach from Harnof. And uh, he says something which I think is a very reasonable uh, position. He starts off by pointing out something which many posts can point out. And yet again, uh, this will be the last time I quote Rav Weiss from the Shir, only because the Shir was on Zachor. So I can't quote him for the rest of the Shir. Uh, I'm getting three times in just right in the beginning. And that way, in case anyone sees Seth Rester Grossman, I was there and I listened um, to the whole Shir. Um, but... Rav Asherweiss pointed out the same thing as Rav Sternbach points out here, which is, it's probably not true, well, correct me if I'm wrong, in the communities that you and I grew up in or in our lifetimes, but once upon a time, it was unheard of for women en masse to go to Parsha Zachor. It's a relatively recent phenomenon. In my whole lifetime, that's all I remember. Special readings for the women. After, I don't know if that's true in every community, but certainly in my community, I guess I can say in Ashkenazi communities that I've grown up in. And I think that is very widespread now. Rav Asher Weiss pointed out, Dafkin Yushalayim, for maybe even a century or more, in Yushalayim it's very, been a very common minhag. In Europe it was unheard of. Yeah, evidently so. Evidently so. So Rav, Rav Sternbach here in source number four relates to that point. He says here, Kayom nashim Right? And he's obviously, if you know anything about, you know, he's from Eid Haredes. This is, you know, even in his community, and I think Kavachomer, as you get out, expand outward. 
however, as he points out, in the middle of source number four, the Mishabru doesn't mention it, no one else mentions it. Moreover, he points out specifically people like the Chazonish, right, that they think that women are patur. And as I mentioned, that's what the Sefer Chinuch says. And many posts can think that women are not obligated uh, to do it. Uh, and he writes the second line, not only are there many poskim who explicitly say women are not obligated, that used to be the minhag, that women were not careful about this. But now he pivots, and this is, I think, very interesting, where it's underlined in verse number four. But the reality is, even in his communities, and I think it's certainly Kavachomer true uh, in the broader community, women are makbid, women en masse, do go to shul or make sure to hear the reading of Parshas Zachor. So interestingly, I don't know what one might have expected, but what he says very clearly is he thinks it's wonderful. He supports the new minhag. I don't think that he's ever against innovations. Chadash is not always Asr Torah. Here he's encouraging and supporting the new minhag. He thinks it should be encouraged. After all, there are some posts who think women really are obligated. So it's a very nice minhag that people are, are being machmir. However, he points out, and here I think this is a very reasonable and balanced approach. Says, but let's say a woman can't. This is, the, this is an important point. This is why it's important to come to Shir and to know, am I really obligated or am I not really obligated? Right? How crazy do you have to make yourself? So I think if you've always been doing it and it's your minhag and this is what is you know, common in our community, then certainly a woman should absolutely try. It's certainly nothing to lose. It's a mitzvah. Even if you're not chayiv, and you might be chayiv. So it makes a lot of sense. I think his, his encouragement is totally in place. But let's say a person is in a particularly difficult situation. Either they themselves, or Rav Avad Yosef, uh, in a different context, discusses women who used to you know, are usually fulfilling optional mitzvos, but now she has a broken leg or something, she can come to shul. Or it could be if people have young kids and somebody's sick. or It could be all sorts of reasons why a woman says, this year I can't. So how crazy do you have to make yourself? If it would be a chiyuv, then you really have no choice. But says Rosh Tarbach, and I think this is reasonable, let's say a person really can't. Do I have to make myself crazy? He says, no. And this is the same thing that Rav Asher Weiss said publicly in Shul this past week. He said that's what he did with his, his whole life. He, you know, he has, I'm not sure how many daughters he has, I think more than a few. And he and his wife, Allah Shalom, he has only one son. So I don't know how many children Rav Asher has, but it's one son and the rest are daughters. Uh, he said he used to come home from Shul every Shabbos, Pasha Zachar, and he'd sit, they'd take out a chumash and he'd read it all together, or he'd read it for them, I'm not sure. I mean, obviously they didn't know how to read. But anyway, Rav Moshe Feinstein, I think, says the same thing. Uh, and this is what he says. So he's not saying l'chachila not to come to shul. He's saying l'chachila, you should try. Of course you should. But if a person can't, even a man might be able to fulfill the mitzvah through a, through a chumash, if he couldn't hear the laning. But certainly, certainly women were, from, from Rishonim, it seems clear that women wouldn't have been chayiv. Um, so I think that's a very, very reasonable uh, approach. If you've always done it, and you're, thank God, flexible enough that you can come, then you absolutely should. But if for whatever reason a person is really in a difficult situation, I don't think you have to make yourself completely crazy. And there's more than what to rely on, more than what to rely on um, to, to read it from a Chumash. What has come in very recent years, you know, maybe the last 20 years, I don't think it's more than that, uh, unless I'm wrong, but I don't think so. And it's only true in certain parts of the community, but I think that does include our shul, if I remember correctly, from last year, uh, which is not only to the women do come, have a second separate reading for the women who couldn't, you know, need to wait for their husbands to come home to watch the kids or something like that. So that is not as universally practiced, but there are a lot of communities. It's not even such a simple question halakhically whether you should do that or not. But that is the minog in many communities, so that it just makes things more flexible and gives more options for women. 
But at the end of the day, if you can't make either of the readings or whatever the community, you know, where you daven, whatever shul you go to, so then I think you have what to rely on. Okay, any questions on Zachor? Okay, I try to be thorough and clear. Okay, next, number two, this will be much quicker. Machsis HaShekel. So there is a minhag. It's, it's only a minhag. It's not more than that of giving masas hashekel. Basically, it's just a nice way of giving tzedakah. Um, but we don't just give tzedakah. We also symbolically lift up, uh, you know, half uh, shkalim or other denominations if you lived in America or other things, silver dollars, that kind of thing, half dollars. Um, it's a minhag. And it's a minhag to do it to different discussions about when. Some do a dafka on Tainus Esther. Some do a dafka on, uh, on, uh, on Purim Day itself. Does it really, really matter? Uh, the question is, who has to give? Again, it's a minhag, but who's supposed to follow this minhag? So this is a big discussion, uh, and it, some, it's a big, the debate is whether, how f- closely this should follow the original Machsas shekel that we recently read about in the Chumash. Because the original Machsas shekel in the Chumash was not only men, but it was men from the age of 20 and up. It wasn't even a slave for Bar Mitzvah. So there's a big debate about Machsas shekel here. Even Bar Mitzvah boys, are they supposed to give? Oh, is it 20? What about other people who might not have given Machsas shekel, including women? Are they... So this is a discussion in general, and uh, I gave you just as a summary relating to women here, um, source number seven from the Pnini Halakha. Oh, I skipped Tainas Esther. Okay, we'll go, I'm going out of order, my bad, but it's okay. We'll go back to Tainas Esther in a second. Sorry about that. Um, but just look at source number seven for a second. So it points out, some posts can say that women should give a matzah a shekel. He thinks that that's a common minhag. What does he say? So he points out something which I think is somewhat common. I don't know if it's obligatory in my opinion, but it is somewhat common. Uh, every year there's at least one man who asks me about this in shul. Do I have to give for my wife and kids also? So he points out that it doesn't seem to be strictly obligatory according to most opinions, uh, but he thinks that it's a common minhag, and at least, I don't know how common it is because not everyone asks me, but at least one person a year does ask me uh, about that. I think it's almost moot, only because the truth of the matter is, and this I strongly encourage, not only for this, and of course it will get to in Machan Slavyonim, people give a lot more than the value of Machsas Shekel, even a few Machsas Shekel, when they give Zechel Machsas Shekel. So it's very easy, I'm not even saying, I don't, you know, if, 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 if the husband has in mind, I'm doing this for my wife, and this is for my other children, and he points out some do even for unborn children, even if, if, you, if you know your wife is pregnant. Okay, it's a nice minog if people do it. I don't think it's necessarily obligatory, and certainly most people, I hope, are giving more than enough money that it would, be, it would count, even if they had Kanai Nara, you know, a family on par with Hanach Teller. Uh, I don't even imagine what's bigger than that, but, uh, uh, but you should even give more money, hell of I. But, um, so, that's, you know, I, I, I've never seen, I wouldn't be against it. If I saw, if I walked into shul, when, you know, on Hannes Esther, and I saw a woman at the bima, with the, we usually put out, you know, the, uh, the various things, the kupa will put a box on the bima, and uh, the other organizations, I'm not giving any preference to the kupa, uh, the other organizations in the neighborhood, I collect for local aniyim, people, so if a person would pick up, the, you know, I saw a woman doing it, nothing wrong with it at all, but I've never seen it. I've never seen a woman actually doing it, but in many families, the husband gives and he has in mind he's doing it also for his wife and his children. Okay, I, I'm sorry I went out of order. Let's go back for a second to source number five, and that is, of course, uh, Tainus Esther. So the background of Tainus Esther is very, very interesting because we know it's not a Daraisa fast, obviously nothing about Purim's Daraisa, but we know we have four rabbinic fasts which are mentioned in the Nevi'im, but Tainus Esther is not. All those famous psukim in the Navi, that's referring to Sarbateves and Tishabov and Shavasarbatamos and Sam Gedalia. Tainus Esther is not. 
And in fact, as a result of that, uh, when the poskim discuss and bring down the issue of uh, Tainas Esther, they're very clear that, strictly speaking, it's not a chiyuv. It's a, it's a minhag, which has kind of become an obligatory minhag, but it's much, much more makal than all of the other uh, fasts. If you take a look at the Ramah in source number 5, so the Shacharach mentions the phenomenon, Mis'anim B'dugimel Adar, we, we fast on the 13th of Adar, Tainas Esther, says the Ramah right away, source number 5, V'tainizze now you know why. It's, not, it's much more makal than all the other fasts. Much more. There's Tishabav, I mean, there's Yom Kippur, there's Tishabav, there's the other three, and then there's Tainas Esther. It is by far the most lenient. It's not even considered a chova here in the Shulchan Aruch. And therefore, says the Ramah, continuing, Lachain, Yesh Lachakel Bol We can be much more makal and much more lenient when it comes to Tainas Esther. So before we discuss the specifics of how makal can we be and for who can we be makal, um, so if it's not a chova, then why do we do it? So the most likely, the most common answer people assume, since it's called Tainus Esther, is that we imagine it was the fasting that was done before Esther went to speak to Achashverosh. However, most poskim say that's probably a mistake, because that took place in Nisan, not in Adar. She didn't fast on the 13th of Adar, that's way after the good news had already happened. They'd already had this, the big you know, uh, switcheroo with Haman. Haman was, was dead by then. He was already I mean, we still had the fighting on, on the 13th and the 14th, but that's what, not when she fasted. Uh, moreover, she, they did three days of fasting then. Who wants to volunteer for that? Um, so more likely, uh, the explanation is, and this is what the Mishnah Brewer brings down in source number six, that we have a tradition, a tradition, a hashkafa, a value, that before you go to war, you know, as much as we do our hashtados, we know that our success in the battlefield will ultimately come from Hashem. Therefore, we have to have big filler rallies, big tehillim rallies, and part of our tshuva and our prayer for Hashem to Hashem before we fight also includes fasting, says the Mishnah Bura. And therefore, and he points out, we have, this goes back to Moshe Rabbeinu in the original fighting with Amalek, that they fasted before they, before they went to battle. And therefore, says the Mishnah Bura, we can assume as well, B'yamei Mordechai Ve'ester, they also gathered on Yogi Adar, L'yilachem L'amor Anavsham, Mistama, Tzrichin Levakesh Rachamim V'tachanunim, they davened beforehand, U'matzinu K'shayb Yom Milchama Hayim and just like any, we know in other times in history, they fasted beforehand. So that's where it comes from. We can assume that they fasted then, so we fast. So Mishabur points out, well, if that's the case, why is it called Tain Sester? That's a confusing red herring. So he explains very beautifully that it's called Tain Esther. Why? Why? Esther, from this it's clear, even more than Mordechai, she represents the Purim story. It's not Esther, the individual in this context. It's Esther representing the Purim story. It's called Tainus Esther to remind us, and this the Rambam says in a completely different context, that uh, Mayor Torsky loves to emphasize this when he speaks about Purim. Uh, he quotes the same Rambam, that the main message of Purim is to teach Jews for all history, that when you're in a tzara, you daven to Hashem, and He can answer it doesn't always answer what we want. That I understand. But that the, the precedent for that, for all Jewish history, says the Rambam, is the Purim story. They were in Tsaris, to put it mildly. They davened, and Hashem made a miracle and saved us. And that hashkafa, that belief, that amuna, that it's possible. When we're Bitsara and we daven, Hashem in Duchuva, Hashem can change it. That is the message of Purim. Says the Mishibura, that's why we have Tainus Esther. And it's called Esther as opposed to Tainus Mordechai or Tainus Purim or whatever other name you would have given it, because she is the emblem of all of that. But it's not about her personal fasting, it's about Am Yisrael um, and that message. Okay, so that's just an interesting background, uh, Bahalakhali, 
and uh, hashkafically. So what does this mean in terms of practically speaking? So practically speaking, someone who's otherwise in good health has no stresses whatsoever on themselves, I mean, other than normal life, um, absolutely should fast. The person should not be part together, we shouldn't separate ourselves, and that definitely includes women as well, in my opinion. There are parts of the community, I think it's more in the Hasidic community, where women just don't fast other than Yom Kippur. Okay, if that's your family minog, I'm not messing with it. Uh, but unless that's your personal family minhag, um, I think women absolutely should fast on Tanya Sester, just like uh, men. However, just like men, there's a lot of room uh, to be makil. Uh, that's absolutely the case. So if you take a look at the back in source number five, uh, the Ramah is explicit. He gives examples. Someone who's pregnant, someone who's nursing, a chola, someone who's actually sick, even if they're not in sakana. They just have to lie down. That's usually the definition of a chola, shembo sakana. Someone who can't function normally, they're, they're feeling icky enough, and pain enough, weak enough, that they can't really function, we, you know, even if it's not... And then says the Ramah, a very famous phrase, which is unique to Tainus Esther, right? you're, you're, some, you know, you have red eye, you're, you're, you have some, some discomfort in your eye, it's not limited to an eye, it's a way of saying, even if you're just a little bit discomforted, in theory that's enough uh, to be exempt from uh, Tainus Esther. Um, now he points out, and this is only talking about that last category, if you really, really could have fasted, but I'm a little in, a little in pain, so you don't have to fast, it's explicit, but then you're supposed to pay it back. Maybe you're supposed to find some other day to fast. So I don't think you're gaining that much. But if a person, a woman, someone who's really sick, or a pregnant or nursing woman, so not only are you exempt, or could you break your fast in either case, but you don't have to pay it back. That's not referring uh, to that case. But again, the, to, to, to end the Ramah where I started, but in general, Baruch Hashem, if you're healthy, you have no other stresses, you shouldn't be different, you should fast uh, like everyone else. So, I don't know, nor am I asking certainly in public uh, for anyone in this room, uh, if they're pregnant or nursing, uh, but I don't know who's going to listen to this on the recordings, so I'll just point out that there are some very interesting uh, machlokos, which are very uh, relevant, halacha lamaisa, uh, to women um, in, in this context. So, uh, for example, uh, this question is, uh, how soon in the, how early in the, at what point in the pregnancy would a woman already not be, you know be able to fast? So Ravad Yosef and others say only after three months. So until three months, you know, uh, there's no stress to the fast. It's not a problem. But other poskim are uh, I guess makel would be the right word. Other poskim are more makel, uh, and they say no. Once she once she learns that she's pregnant, uh, once it's been confirmed that she's pregnant, uh, then at that point already, you know, we don't want to take any chances, and just right away she's uh, she's exempt, even if she's not in pain. Yeah, we get other fasts, you know, many of you have spoken to me, and so many people ask me every year, whether it's Tisha B'Av or Shavasav Tamas, and I always say, absolutely, a pregnant woman should start, assuming that everything's a normal pregnancy. You should start fasting. Then we can talk about it, and I can give you guidance when you'd break your fast. But at Tainas Esther, we can be more makele than that. And I don't think a pregnant woman really has to even try to fast uh, on Tainas Esther, and probably even once she knows she's pregnant, even in the early stages, certainly, certainly after the... Uh, after three after three months, uh, even more widespread question is how do you define nursing women? Now you think that sounds like a very obvious uh, question. Uh, even a man should be able to answer that question. You would think, uh, but it's not so simple because there were poskim who felt that up to twenty four months, two full years after a baby is born, even if the mother has stopped nursing, but her body is still somewhat weaker, and therefore one could be in the category of a meineket of a nursing woman, even in that stage. There are poskim uh, who say that. Uh, I'm not sure nowadays if that's really a very, very mikubal psak. Um, like Bleich and others discuss, you know, like, it, it just, in general, empirically, we don't see women feeling you know, weak 
physically in any really vulnerable way up to two years. And again, for unique situations, but in the typical. Uh, so, I, and saying, so there are, um, if, if, if you have poskim who really, or your community accepts that psaka, I'm, I'm not messing with it. Um, but to just, you know, kind of hear that psaka and say, oh, you know, I, I think, you know, if a person, you, know, you have to be honest with yourself. If, if you're, thank God, healthy, and you should much prefer to be able to fast on time sester and be healthy. Uh, that's the better option than saying I'm weak, but I can't fast on time sester. So if you have a real, you know, predominant community minhug, so I'm not, I'm not mixing in. But if you don't have a community, I'm just pointing out that there are some who are definitely makele on that. Uh, but I'm not, you know, there are other posts who are much less, um, you know, Rav Yaakov Ariel, you know, he says, you know, to give a blanket heter for every woman who ever had a baby up to 24 months, you know, he, he's not comfortable with either. Uh, and the Mishnah Guru points out, and I think what you just said is, is to that point. The Mishnah Guru says, not everything in life, but on this, on this, if, 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 if you're a community that's acceptable, then that's fine. Uh, I don't think, again, I, I, I can't speak, I'm not even sure we have yet a minhag for Kilar Eila, or, or I don't even know if there's a quote minhag of uh, Ramat B'Chemish. I don't think we live in that kind of community where you can have such a thing. So if you know that this is your family minhag, or your Sephardi, or your Hasidish, or whatever, okay. Uh, but otherwise, I would say, hopefully, unless you're in, you know, particularly weak, I wouldn't necessarily automatically rely on that because you, know, you have a year and a half old child and you stopped nursing seven months ago or something. To me, it's a little bit uh, pushing it. Yeah. So if one has a headache, but they're okay to function, obviously they shouldn't break their back. That's not obvious. That's obvious on the other. It's on the other right. It's on the. It's obvious on the other fast days. Uh, I don't think it's obvious well, here. Tyson, you can be more makeup. That, that's the core of right. a nine. So if you have a headache that like you feel like you need to lie Every, down, then certainly like. I think you could again. I, just, I wouldn't break my fast anyway. I'm just telling you honestly. And every every year, my wife, at various different points, you know, even even when she's like really in pain, she gets a lot of bad headaches. She refuses to break her fast. Like there are people, you know, and who are stubborn in a good way uh, for this kind of thing, and I think that's admirable. Uh, but it's certainly, certainly, on Tanya's Esther, again, everyone's get, I, almost no one will make it to the end of the fast with no headache. I don't personally think that would be a little, you know. But I had, a, I had a. I remember my husband asked you because he's like, "Oh, just lie down if you have that." But then he asked you because my head was like really hurting. And I told you probably to break the fast. And yeah, and I broke the fast. I don't remember what. See, I'm not. Just, uh, <laughs> I don't just talk the talk. I walk the walk. <laughs> You, you wouldn't pick your pants. <laughs> okay, I, you know, I personally... Like, no, okay, if I had a blinding headache, I had something like that on uh, Shiva Batamas last this past year, which I, not call, I was like... I think it's the first, first time I can remember since I'm 13, but I had to break my fast on Shiva Batamas. I was... I, I was the, since 8th or ninth grade is the worst headache I can remember. I have no idea why it happened. I was like... I was actually in America staying at my sister's neighbor's uh, in, in, the, in the five towns. I'm up in their attic. You know, very nice guest quarters. But I was beyond, beyond in pain. I never had anything like that in my life. I can remember. Maybe 30 years ago. Maybe 40 years ago even. Um, but yes. So, But that's me. I'm not saying you have to follow me. Um, and that was not even time assessor. But yes, I think if a person has a bad head, again, you have to, you know, be L'shem Shemayim, or, or call me, I'm happy to help, you know. Uh, there's definitely, you know, you definitely can have a lower bar on time assessor. I'm, I'm comfortable saying that. And certainly if you would be, you have to lie down, that's, you know, the Ramah says you don't have to fast. Okay, let's go, uh, let's get to Purim itself. Okay, so now we're ready for Purim itself. So that means we have four mitzvahs to do as quickly as we can. Okay, four mitzvahs, right? The four mitzvahs of Purim are Megillah, Matan Salvioni, Mishlach Manos, and Sudas Purim. And we'll try to do it in that order. So, when it comes to the Megillah, source number eight, famous Gemara, teaching Rosh Hashanah and Levi, women are obligated to hear the Megillah. Why? Isn't it Mr. Sejah Grama? The answer is yes, it is a Mr. Sejah Grama. 
But for those who are with us, I don't know how many months ago when we did our two-part series on Mitzvah Seshul Grama, we learned that there are many exceptions to that rule. One of the exceptions is, Af hein hayub osahanes. Now, whether that means there's two different interpretations, either it means that because Esther was the catalyst to the miracle, or, you know, I think more likely even, is that everyone, including the women, were just as vulnerable to Haman's decree, and therefore we're all the same beneficiaries of Hashem's miracle, and therefore we all have the same equal obligation to praise Hashem and thank Hashem for His miracle. So therefore we assume that women are obligated in the Megillah, and the Shulchan Aruch brings this down in source number 9, the next source, HaKol Chayavim B'Kriyasa Anashim V'Nashim. Now, I could give a whole sheer on the next point I'm about to say, or the next, which we're not going to, but just to, point, just to illustrate how much women are obligated in it, there's a major machloket whether a woman could read the Megillah and be mostly a man. The majority view is yes. Okay, I repeat that. The majority view in Rishonim is a woman could read the Megillah and be mostly a man. There is a minority view in Rishonim that for all sorts of reasons disagrees. And common practice, as you see in Shulchan Aruch, number nine, where the little bet is, we are machmir for that opinion. And you and I probably have never seen it before for good reason of a woman reading Megillah for a man. I'm just pointing out to you, not because I'm looking to cause trouble uh, in the neighborhood. I'm probably ready to liberal rabbi, so I don't need to go anymore. Uh, but that uh, but I'm only under, uh, pointing this out to underscore just how obligated women are, that there's even a havamina, let's put it that way, to be conservative about it. There's even a havamina, a woman could be mostly uh, a man. So what about a woman being mostly herself? It would seem obvious that, again, you have to know how to read the Megillah, that's the first point. But if, if a woman knew how to read the Megillah, uh, carefully, I don't know how to read the Megillah, so uh, it's not a, to me it's not a criticism if you don't know, I don't know either how to read the Megillah. No, but the, but the pronunciation of the words would be. Uh-huh. You know, and you'd be reading from a cloth. Uh, but in theory, uh, listen, if you ever had a child or a husband who, was, who, who read the Megillah and was practicing, so it's like, the, just like you may know your son's Bar Mitzvah Parsha by heart, so you, you, although the Megillah is a lot longer than a typical Bar Mitzvah Parsha, uh, but yeah, in theory, a person could, anyway, so it seems Ikara Adin, it should be obvious that if a, if a woman needed to, she could read a Megillah for herself, and there's even a big discussion uh, about whether women could read a Megillah for other women, uh, and the, while there's a minority view, a minority view, again, a prominent view, but a minority view that women could not read for other the women, uh, many, many poskim, including Rav Yosef and Rishlom Zalman Orbach, uh, and others who you might even be uh, less surprised by, but I'm mentioning their names in particular, uh, feel that really in there's no problem, uh, even if a woman would read for other women. Um, I'm not aware of, you know, women's Megillah readings being a big thing in Ramat Chemesh, uh, and personally... I said I'm not aware. Now you're aware. I, 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 I am not aware. I'm not aware. I'm not aware. Uh, and I am a traditionalist. I'm not an, I'm not an advocate uh, of such regular readings uh, as a l'chachila option. In other words, the idea that someone would choose to go to such a reading just for the chavaya of it, uh, I'm not a fan of on many levels, including uh, specifically the fact that if you turn uh, over the page uh, to source number 11, uh, this is the Mishnah Brura and the Shar Hatzion, points out that Megillah in particular has a very strong emphasis on Barov on Hadras Melech. That because in general we say the more people who are involved in a mitzvah is better, but especially because Megillah is Persuminisa. Um, and therefore, Ad Kedekach, Ad Kedekach, I won't read it inside because it's late, but the Sharetzion in source number 11, that's the Mishnah Brewer, in his footnotes, he writes, he has a Havamina, maybe if you live in a neighborhood in which there's a big shul and a lot of small shuls. He has a Havamina, 
that all the small shuls should be closed on Purim night so that everyone comes to the one big shul. That's how important Rovam is. Nothing to do with women. In general, he ends up saying, no, we don't go crazy. If you have a minion kavua, minion kavua and this is your shul, so even if you go to the small shul, you go to the shtibul, and there's the big shul down the block, that's okay, because that's your minion kavua. He then adds, you know, maybe he was anticipating corona, what if you have a house minion? He writes explicitly, even if it's a regular minion, no, I'm quite aware even pre-corona, even pre-corona, there are, in, in, in almost every community, there's like one family or one group of friends who like every year, they dafka have Purim night in their house. I, I, you know, I try not to get into fights with people. Uh, it's not my style. But anytime I have the opportunity to say something to people in a nice way, I try to encourage them that as a hum- I'm not a fan of these things in general, but it's a huge mistake on part of it. It's really against the halacha. Uh, so that's how important Persimonis is. So getting back to the issue of women's Megillah readings, so to me, it's a tremendous hitter to be at a big Megillah reading if one can, uh, and to go to um, the, the main public reading in your shul. It doesn't mean you have to go to the biggest shul in the neighborhood. Whatever your shul is, that's where a person uh, should go. So to opt out of that for some other external reason... I'm not saying it's usher. I'm saying it's not lefi ruchi. Um, but, but, I am comfortable saying, which is, you know, I think what Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach said, what Rav, uh, Rav Yosef said, and I just got a new published book from Rav Yaakov Ariel, who's probably the leading post in the Datilumi world as well, who also said that, but also put I said, but let's say women can't go to that minion anyway. So, let's say someone, again, I don't know how common it is that there are women who are capable of reading it, but if you knew a woman who was really capable of reading it, and anyway, you couldn't go to the main reading, and you're going to some smaller reading anyway, I can't see really any reason, a uh, strong reason, uh, to say there would be a problem with it. I can tell you right now, in a million years, my wife would never go. She's very firm, my wife. She, she wouldn't go. And I'm not, and you know, again, I'm, we're both very traditional in that sense. Thank God we're on the same page on these kind of things. But if a woman would feel that she wanted to go, you know, especially if she already couldn't go because of her children or whatever to the main reading, uh, again, it's not my thing. I am being upfront about that. Uh, but you have many, many postgim uh, who you could rely on in a way that you wouldn't say in some of the other more controversial issues of our generation. But McGill reading, there's much stronger of a basis. Uh, to allow it, and as you probably know, there are some seminaries uh, uh, that have that, and there I think it's a much stronger argument, only because they're not being porished from some tzibor. They're their own tzibor. They got a quote-unquote quote, women's tzibor every day when they dive them together, and I know for my wife who runs, a, who runs a seminary that does not have a woman's reading, you get a scramble to find a shul in the neighborhood for the girls to go to, or a yeshiva that'll let the girls to go to. So again, that's what my wife does anyway, and that's probably what most seminaries do. But there are a few seminaries, very famously, that have women's regular readings, and I think that's even more legitimate, even frankly, than one in a community. That would be my personal feeling. But, again, I don't think this is such a burning issue in our community, in our neighborhood, uh, so I'm just mentioning this uh, for our own uh, knowledge edification. At minimum, at minimum, so perhaps uh, whatever you do or don't do, uh, to understand perhaps where some other people who might do something differently than you uh, are coming from. You know, like everything I would say, for men and for women, uh, the first and most important thing is to make sure it's mutter. And the second most important thing is to make sure that you're L'shem Shemayim. But if you can satisfy those things, so there's definitely more wiggle room in this topic than there might be in some of the other more sensitive, politically, uh, politically sensitive uh, uh, topics. Okay, so that's when it comes to reading. Uh, while you're reading, like this is true equally for the men and the women, uh, it's not always easy to hear. You try to make sure the show's quiet, and you try to make sure you have a good balcore, but between the noise and the kids, so it's very important to be following, first of all, to be paying attention. If you miss a word, you're in trouble. Uh, you don't want to be that person who misses a word. 
Um, and second of all, if, since you might miss a word or two here and there, so it's important to not only pay attention, but to follow along you know, with, a, with a Megillah or with a Chumash. Um, if a person would have access to a kosher Megillah, that's even better. But most people don't. I personally don't. But a lot of people, I don't know how many, I, I, I'm not in women's sections. I don't know if a woman, if it's, if it's even heard of a woman to show up with a kosher Megillah. I have, there's no problem with it if she did. But, um, but whether you're like me and you have a printed Chumash or even better would be a kosher Megillah. If you realize you missed the word, then very quickly and quietly to yourself, you can read it, even though really Megillah needs to be from a, a kosher Megillah, from a cloth. But as long as the majority of the Megillah was read in a kosher way, a word here and there, a person, man or woman, uh, could, could, uh, could add, could be mashlim uh, from a printed uh, chumash or a printed uh, Megillah. Even, I personally, for years, my kids still laugh at me, for years and years and years, and, and until, until I buy myself or someone buys me a, a beautiful kosher Megillah, the, when I say I use a printed one, I literally use the art school kids Megillah. That little big thing, you know, with the pictures... And only like, you know, three and a half second per page, that's mine. You know, we have like six different versions of these kids' Megillas, and one of them always goes to me. And my kids, as they've gotten older, have gotten more embarrassed, and that's a theme. Um, but I find it easier to follow it uh, that way than some, you know, traditional chumash with like a hundred lines or something on a page. Okay, next, let's go to Matanas Le'ev Yonim. Source number 12. So this is based on the, the fact that, as the Gemara says, that the words in the Megillah are matanos levyonim. That's both are plural. So you have to give a certain minimum amount, a matana, but times two to two different people. That's matanos levyonim. The Gemara uh, points out, and again, uh, we won't do so much inside now so we can go a little faster, uh, but the Gemara points out uh, that this has to be done like all of the mitzvahs we're about to discuss, Matan Savyonim, Mishloach, Manos, and the Suda, all that has to be done on Purim day, specifically uh, on the day. Uh, this is a big discussion, even more so with Matanas Lavyonim than the other ones, because a lot of times people, you know, in our neighborhood, you know, very common people knock on the door. Uh, but in a lot of cases, uh, including in our neighborhood, people will give Matanas Lavyonim through an organization, through Lamanachai, through the Kupa, through my private fund, you know, in our shul, but a lot of rabbis have a private fund. Um, so you, people are, you know, those boxes and those requests are happening days before Matanas Lev, you know, Purim. And the answer is that's all fine. You can give the money as long as whoever you're giving it to assures you that they are going to distribute it to the Ani on Purim day. You're not Yodzei the mitzvah if, if the money is given early. You get a mitzvah of tzedakah, but that not with Matanas Lavyonim. Matanas Lavyonim has to be given to the Ani, but you, if you're giving it to an organization, can give it before, as long as you trust them that they're going to give it on uh, Purim uh, Day itself. Uh, the Brura here mentions, again, I'm paraphrasing for the sake of time, but the Brura here mentions that we assume that women are obligated in the mitzvah of Matanas Lavyonim, uh, based, again, on the same principle of Afein Hayboso Anes and Kimu Vikiblu, um, etc. The Brura points out uh, that you know, many, many married women are not so careful about this, but he thinks it's better to be machmer. So how should one be machmer? What does that mean for a married woman uh, to give? So the answer is that there really are two different ways. Uh, many postkim think it's wonderful and fine and encouraged if a woman wants to give on her own. Uh, that's certainly fine. Um, Rav Yaakov Ariel suggests, in particular, if you knew of a, if you knew of a, a woman who's a divorcee or a single or something, for a woman to give, so it's, it's obviously you know, tsnius lemahadrin and it's a chesed too, and you know why not if a, if a woman would want to give? Nevertheless, uh, all the contemporary posts can point out that it's also it's also fine if the husband is giving on behalf of his wife too. 
again, the amount you have to give is a pretty minimal amount. Mi'ikar uh, hadin. So, no self-respecting person is giving that little anyway. You're giving much more than you have to give, and there's nothing wrong if that's, a, if, you know, and I think that's true in most families, you know, certainly in our family. I don't think my wife's ever individually given somebody. I'd be happy if she wanted to. But usually she just assumes that I'm giving uh, on her behalf, um, and that is totally fine. Just one thing I want to read uh, inside because it's so important, um, and that is, uh, if you take a look at source number 13, for those who have it, um, in Sifkat and Gimel, three quarters of the way down, this is the Mishnah Brura quoting from the Rambam. This is very, very important. Uh, I think our neighborhood, and maybe Israel in general, is not as crazy as America, but even for us, it's probably a good uh, reminder. Says the Rambam here, this is the citation from the Mishnah Brura, Mutav laharbos b'matanas lavyonim, me laharbos b'sudaso u'bishloch manas l'reyav. Right now, again, in America, I don't know if it's as true here, but it's probably a little bit true here. It's a, it's a recent Mishagas, but it is a crazy Mishagas. People go insane with Mishloch Manos. There's even a Shaila if you're allowed to be Yotze, if I don't have a theme. No, I'm just kidding. That's just a crazy, new crazy in it, right? Like, people are like, the amount of intellectual and time, time and effort and money that's spent. Again, hopefully it's Hashem Shemaim, it's for a good cause. But it's clear that that's fine. You should, everyone, should, you know, some people can afford more than other people. But it shouldn't come at the expense of, oh, yes, you know, again, I put a hundred shekel in the pushka, you know, or, or, or less, for Matan Savyonim, and we spent, you know, who knows how many hundreds, if not more, sometimes it's probably four figures for some people, uh, on Mishlach Manos. It's totally, totally upside down from a halachic perspective. As the Rambam says, She'ein simcha gedola mefowara ela l'sameach levaniyim yisomi valmanos yidoma l'shchina, etc. The greatest simcha, the greatest mitzvah is to be able to help people who are poor and unfortunate in Nebuch situations. And let me tell you, there's no shortage of them, even in this neighborhood, uh, broadly speaking, Kav Chomer in the big wide world. So I'm not here to give a number how much a person has spent on Mishlach Manos. We'll get to Mishlach Manos in a minute anyway. But whatever you're doing, I personally think it's something very much to sit down with your husbands, think about it, whatever you want to budget. But the main thing should be Matana uh, Slavyonim, you know, and there are many different worthy ways and good causes uh, that a person uh, can do for that. Kids are potter, technically, because they don't have any of their own money, Mikar Adin. But it's obviously very, very good chinuch to give your children money that they should be able to uh, give. Very, very good. I try this in general. And sometimes, again, I don't have kids so much at home anymore. Uh, but when my kids were younger, uh, whenever it was possible, when someone knocked at the door all year, I would give them the money to give. You know, hopefully, not in a way that the person felt disrespected. After I said hello to them, so give me one second. Let me. I'll, I'll be back in a minute. I often would send uh, my children, and I'd like to think that it has been successful in cultivating a sense of giving uh, for them. So certainly, Matan Slavyonim Chinuch, I think, is uh, important. Okay, next, Mishlach Manos. Here also, source number 14. Isha, chayeves ma Matan Slavyonim, u Mishlach Manos Ish. So it wasn't just Matan Slavyonim, as we saw, but it's also Mishlach Manos. Women have an independent mitzvah uh, to give Mishlach Manos. So certainly that's relevant for single girls. So if you have uh, over bat mitzvah age daughters uh, or things like that, that certainly women uh, are obligated on. Uh, and... Um, here we have a similar phenomenon when it comes to the issue of uh, married women. Um, again, some postings suggest, Kitzur Shachan Arach and others, you know, that a woman should try to give by herself uh, to another woman. Uh, again, you can give to a woman on behalf, you give to a, a married woman can give to a married woman even though you know you're also giving it to their husband. That's not inappropriate. Um, and I don't even think in our community, if, you, if a woman wanted to bring over Mishlach Manos and the man answered the door, I don't think in our community, again, maybe in certain other communities that would be a princess getter. I don't think in our community that that would be unsinua either, personally. Uh, but 
that some post can think it's a good thing for uh, even the married women to give on their own. But I think it's more, it's, it's more common for people not to be mocked on that. Now, very often, especially when a lot of times people are giving abundance of Bershach when someone comes to the door, it is very often actually the woman giving. Very, as a Matthias, I think. But in terms of going out of your way to give, so I think, you know, many families are uh, followed, there are Hashochan and others who say it's also similar to Matan Slavyonim. It's okay, you know, whether it's the husband or the wife to be giving on behalf of uh, the couple. You just, some, if I'm not mistaken, I think he felt, well, if you're giving on behalf of a couple, so then you should give at least four different monos, right? We know, Mishloch monos, Ish that's that's singular, but monos is plural, so we have to give two things to one person. So I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think Rishon Zalman said he thought if, if you were giving on behalf of you, know, you and your wife, you and your husband, it should be four. And then Ravadja said, no, a couple is a couple. You can give two for them. And anyway, what self-respecting person only gives two things anyway? You know, unless you're, you know what I'm saying? You know, we have to have a theme and we have to have all sorts of other things. So probably you're giving a lot more than two things anyway. Probably giving more than four things anyway. And probably giving much more than one shalach monos. Because the ikar is to give to one person. So when you give to, you know, to two, let alone to 32, let alone to 52, let alone to 102 people, however many people people give, but shalach monos too. So certainly there's more than enough to go around for the husband um, and the wife uh, to be yotze. Uh, it's a big discussion. Is there any kind of minimal value? Again, I'm kind of criticizing slash joking about people who go over the top, but you can't give too little either. It's not clear how much is too little. And I think the most accepted opinion is that you have to give an amount or something that is considered koshiv in your community. In other words, it should be something that the person would be insulted by or thinks like, oh yeah, he or she's only giving me this because they don't really like me. Right? Now, so again, I'm not going to start naming communities. I'll get myself in trouble. Uh, but there could be some fluctua- you know, fluctuation between where you live and it could also be some fluctuation if a person was known as a we're the wealthy family or we're a prominent family. So then I think that actually, uh, you know, that comes with rights and, and responsibilities, privileges and responsibilities. You know, people might be insulted. Oh, the so-and-so family only gave me this. So you're a little, you know, it's not so simple that that's even Yotze, let alone a good idea. So, but, but it doesn't have to be over the top. It just means something, again, not, you know, not, if they invited you to their 50th wedding anniversary, that's one kind of gift or your, their child's wedding, right? Everyone understands that Shachmanos is just Shachmanos. And yet, you know, some people are sensitive and there's certain communal expectations. So that might impact what community you choose to live in. Choose to live in a normal neighborhood. Uh, thank God we do. But, uh, but nevertheless, it's something to uh, keep in mind. I have to mention, since uh, this is a once-in-seven-year opportunity, what about giving things that may be salad or fruits or something if you have Kedushat Shviyat? Are you allowed to give Kedushat Shviyat for uh, Mishloch Manos or not? This is a huge debate. Very interesting debate. Uh, I think the predominant view is that it's allowed. Uh, Shlomo Zaman Orbach and others think that there's no problem with that. Uh, Rav Asher Weiss just came out with the third edition of his book on Shemitah. Got my copy at the Shear this past week. Uh, and he has a tshuva, if I remember correctly. I think he, he's also Mako uh, on this. However, if you are, let's say you have, you know, I can't keep track. Peppers are kadosh now. I'm not even sure. I can't remember anymore. Oh, right. Okay, right. Red versus yellow sometimes when you go into best. I don't know. Uh, Why would you not? One, one, one second, one second. Anyway, but if you do, obviously 100% obligatory. To label it. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I, do, I would not do it if you're not willing to label it. That's not fair to the people uh, that you're giving to. There's no reason they have to be thinking about it. For all you know, they're a Yuval Nachri family, whatever. They, if you're going to give it, you should absolutely let them. There are postkim who are against it. Uh, the reason being, I'm probably going to give a whole sheer just on this. So you're lucky you got, got a lot of topics. The men usually just one topic. Uh, I think I might give my Shabbos sheer to the men just on this topic, because uh, there's a lot of interesting things to say on this only mi- micro topic. But the simple point being that 
if you have an existing obligation, independent obligation, a chov, the Mishnah says you're not supposed to use perot sheet to pay that back. Forget Purim. You owe somebody money. And I have, I owe him $100. I have $100 worth of Shemitah uh, peppers. And he has no problem accepting peppers. I still can't give them. I can't repay a debt. So do you view, this is the, the, the whole Shabbos here for the men will be one question basically. Do you view, view Mishloch Manos as a monetary debt or not that you have to pay? So some say yes, some say, many say no, some say yeah, the first person you give, because that's your Ikar Mitzvah, that you can't do. But person number two through a hundred, then you could. Right? So that's an interesting, abstract, theoretical kind of question. Practically speaking, there's definitely what to rely on uh, if you wanted to, uh, but really be very careful, make sure you label it uh, for the people. Okay, if you give me three more minutes, we'll just finish. We started a little late, which was my fault. I apologize, but let's just try to finish. And that is the Su'uda. So um, this is obviously, you know, for many people, their favorite mitzvah. Um, so certainly a very important part of uh, the Purim celebration. And the Gemara uh, tells us, this is in Paskind in the Shulchan Arach here, the source 17, the last source on your sheet, mitzvah laharba besudos reim, this uh, Purim, right? This is not a skippy meal. We should try to have a very wonderful, beautiful, and festive meal on Purim uh, to celebrate. This too, like all the other mitzvahs, has to be in the day when people eat at night, or things like that, you're not Yotze. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, people who live in places where they have to work on Purim, uh, and I used to get Shilas, especially in New York, people have the Shiloh, but even in Baltimore, sometimes get a Shiloh. People are going to be, how early can I eat if I have to leave, or you know, how late can I eat if I come back late? People who are out of the house all day. It's really an unfortunate way to go through Purim. Uh, but for most of us, that's not an issue. Uh, a lot of, you know, it's common to have a mincha before uh, the Suda. Most people try to have it sometime in the, you know, starting, the earlier part of the late afternoon, uh, some have a minog. There are some communities where they dafka start the meal very close to Shkia. I'm not such a fan of that, but there are such communities that do that. But mainly, you definitely have to start the meal before sundown. That's, that's for, uh, that is for uh, sure. Uh, what do you have to eat at the Suda? So it's not clear, but it's probably proper and appropriate to have meat. Uh, if, what if you don't like meat or you're a vegetarian? So the main thing is to have things that you enjoy. Even chicken would be okay. Uh, if you enjoyed that, and if you were a vegetarian and you enjoyed other things, that would also be okay. But for those of us who generally eat and like meat, so that's definitely uh, the right thing to do. Uh, it's a discussion whether you have to wash or not. Not everyone holds you have to wash. But the common minhag you know, uh, is, is to wash and have a mozi, but it's not like Shabbos or Yantafor, it's a strict chiyuv. It's not clear that you would have to uh, wash. But the minhag, I think, is, is to do that. Um, Interesting thing about meat, I'll just mention, you know, and uh, if you know anyone this is relevant to, uh, or if it becomes relevant for you, so now you'll know, what about a woman who's going to the mikvah that night? So we know that usually on the on mikvah night, women don't eat meat. We don't know, you should know, but you probably all know already, because uh, we're worried that the meat will get caught in people's teeth, and it could be a problem of a uh, chatzitza. So here, uh, some very prominent post-game, including Rosh Hashanah Arbach, and even uh, I have the Chuvas at home over Moshe Haberstam, who was the head of the Eid Haredes. Uh, they're all encouraging, they think it's such an important mitzvah that you meet at the Suda, this would be an exception. Even a woman who's going to the mikvah later that night, uh, again, you have to be very careful. Uh, you still can't have chatzitza. But the idea of having meat, and then you worry about it after the fact with flossing and whatever, uh, could be that for the Purim Suda, meat is such an important thing that it would be mutter even to have meat uh, at the Purim Suda. Last but not least is, of course, the issue of drinking. Uh, there is a mitzvah of Adlo Yada. Uh, you won't be surprised, I give a full hour share on this in Yeshiva this week. That was the topic they wanted to hear about. Um, and uh, now is not the time to get into all of it. What's the hashkafa behind it? Is it right? Is it wrong? One thing I can for sure tell you, the people who act like boars, so not only are they boars, that's for sure also. 
Right? We had a few, before we moved in this neighborhood, but in our previous house once, uh, we were uh, about the same distance. Are we, were we farther away from you then, or closer than we are now? Okay. Same exact distance, four <laughs> houses, whatever it is. Uh, so leaving that block on 47 and Getty, at least one year, I remember Alana was like, called me from the, she just left the house. I'm like, what happened? She was like, I can't get out. There's like five yeshiva guys who jumped on the car. Okay. It was crazy. Right? So this is inexcusable. It's a It's usher. It's terrible. Uh, is there a place for uh, drinking in a more kaddish environment, surrounded in you know in a, in a good ruach of uh, simcha shel mitzvah? And that wasn't even part of the season. Correct. So, is there a place for that? The answer clearly for most poskim is yes. Um, again, how much should people drink? That's a question. How much can they drink and still behave appropriately? That's certainly a question. Um, many poskim, not all, but many poskim think the mitzvah is only at the suda. Uh, but not everyone agrees with that, to be honest. Some people think that any time during Purim drinking is, is, is some kind of a mitzvah. Um, some say Shaddaf could be wine and other liquors, which also helps usually usually the inappropriate behavior if you can keep people away from the hard liquor. Uh, and most posts can think as a general rule, certainly excessive drinking would be particularly usher for women. Um, and if you follow the news at all, you know that almost every bad story that you read about um, you know, alcohol is often uh, a, 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 pre, a, a step that came before something that a woman regretted. Um, it, it's an imbalance in society, but it's a reality. Uh, it certainly does not help a woman to stay tzanua. Uh, that's for sure. So I do know some seminaries where they're having a pseudo, just all the girls together in a very protected environment, or they'll give out a little bit of wine. I know some seminaries that wouldn't even do that. Uh, but certainly uh, in a mixed company, and especially the excessive drinking, uh, I would not think it would be appropriate uh, for women. Uh, but if it's your husband and or children, you know, again, on a case-by-case basis, and it's L'Shem Shemaim, and it'll be done you know, in some level of moderation. So there's, you know, the short version is there's definitely Makaros that would support such a thing. Okay. My pleasure. Yishakawach.